we are drawn to stories of triumph in the Bible. It is easy to focus only on them to pump us up. We avoid the stories of sadness, loss and despair. How can they lift us up? Kia ora, everyone. Good to see you guys. Um, hey, it's great to be back. Before I, I, I jump into the message, um, a lot of us, you may or may not have noticed, a lot of us were away last week because um, last week we had the Baptist Hui or Baptist National Gathering or Big Baptist Conference or the Big Baptist Thingy. Um, that was happening uh, over in New Plymouth, uh, which was super exciting. It's a chance for all the Baptist churches to get together to talk about what God is doing, to ask the questions of what is God calling us to do in the future. Um, and it was a, a really amazing time. And I want to share this because often it's hard to get an idea of what's happening on a national level when we're kind of just doing things here in our own context. But it was really, really cool. The, the conversations that we got to have were um, really encouraging. We got to go to um, Parihaka. We actually got to go to the site of Parihaka and hear the story of what happened there. Now, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, Parihaka is a really significant event in New Zealand's history. Um, it was kind of the spark that ignited a lot of the land wars uh, in the late 18th century, and Parihaka was an amazing site of peaceful, uh, nonviolent resistance. And so it was so, uh, uh, such a privilege to be able to be there and hear those stories and hear about what that means for us as Baptists in trying to engage in this bicultural journey, Maori, Pakia, and then everybody else and what that looks like. So that was really a real cool privilege. Um, we got to update our language around women and affir affirming the roles that women have within the church and affirming God's um, full range of giftings that he has given to women to lead and to shape the gospel in our society. We got to welcome in a whole bunch of new churches. And this was really cool. A lot of the new churches that have joined our movement have actually come from refugees, um, from Burmese refugees who kind of fled to this country. They're all now becoming Christians and they're coming into our Baptist movement, which is so cool. Like what a privilege for us to be able to have them as part of our family. Um, so I walked away from this Baptist who we really encouraged, because um, if you take a big perspective step, step back, looking at what we're doing, when you look at the hui, it's a, it's a question of what do, they think that, what do the Baptists think is important? What do the Baptists think God is doing? The conversations that we have there reflect what we think God is doing nationally. And I walked away super encouraged that we spent so much time joining in this bicultural journey, affirming the role of women, affirming the role of refugees and foreign immigrants within the church and how that brings a greater richness to the gospel. So to me, that brings a huge vote of confidence because when you look into the future, New Zealand's only going to keep on changing. The amount of nations and languages and immigrants that are coming in, this is the future of what God is doing. That's where his wind is blowing. And so I walked away so encouraged that we as Baptists are willing to go on that journey which was super cool. And then the other thing I wanted to share, and I get to share it because he's not here, um, I really wanted to affirm Craig. Um, now again, it's hard for us to see because Craig's just like our pastor man who does his talk thing here, but Craig has a really significant role leading the Baptists and running and organizing these hui's and providing leadership for that. And so what I walked away really encouraged, I walked away encouraged by, is I know for the last seven years, Craig has been doing kind of this dual role, a couple days here working at the church, a couple days over at the national office. And and that has been tough sometimes because we like Craig around as much as we can, right? And so it's meant we've had to release him to go to other things. He's not as available to us for phone calls or as for meetings as we'd like. And sometimes that puts a cost on us. But I walked away from Hui 
looking at his leadership and what he's been able to shape amongst the Baptist Union, really encouraged because God has used him really significantly. Uh, I'm convinced that when you look back on the story of Baptists 50 years from now, some of the decisions and leadership Craig helped impart are going to be decisions we're still going to be talking about then. And so I wanted to encourage you guys as a church, because it's hard for you to see that, but us releasing Craig hasn't just been a thing that we do because we have to. Our releasing of him to do that has actually served our wider family. And so I wanted to thank you for allowing Craig to be able to do that, because there are many other churches, and we as a movement are in a better place because we've taken that opportunity to sacrifice him and release him for that. So just want to commend him to him. So go give him a hug after these hooey's. He gets a lot of people saying it's great, but he also has to deal with twice the amount of complaints. He's got to deal with all of our complaints and then all the complaints of the Baptists. So give him a hug when you see him, um, because he's a pretty good dude, eh? All right, now having said that, let's uh, let's pray. Um, God, as we come before your word, to close out this lament series, we pray that you will speak to us. Um, Lord, we, we don't see clearly. God, we have our own preconceptions, our own blinders, our own biases that when we come to the word and when we come to looking at ourselves, we don't actually see ourselves very accurately. We don't see the world very accurately. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak truth that we might see you more clearly and understand ourselves more clearly in light of your word. In the name we pray, amen. All right, so I want to talk to you today um, in this final kind of series of lament. It's been pretty cool, eh, hearing these different songs and connecting these songs of the world to the Bible and what does this mean for us. I want to talk to you today about the roles that we play. Um, Now, if I can have a bit of an honest confession time with you, I want to tell you about this week I was kind of moving stuff around. We were shifting rooms. We're trying to put both of our kids in the same room, which is either incredibly brave or incredibly naive. We're not quite sure yet which. Um, but we were shifting things in our, in, our, in our closets, and as I was going through the closets, I, I stumbled upon something that made me laugh. I found this box of some of my old stuff, and within it, I found a pair of like really, really round, fake, cheap plastic glasses, and then some rainbow suspenders. And when I saw it, I just broke out laughing, because these few items were from a very significant period of my life. When I was about 12 years old, I was uh, in the States, and I was part of a church, quite a big church, probably a little bit bigger than this one. And um, the children's pastor there wanted me to help out with some of the kids' ministries. And so he wanted me to help run one of the lessons that we were going to teach the kids. And so he gave me this plan, and he wanted me to assume this character called Felix Einstein, the smartest boy in the world. And um, what it was is I would put on these nerdy glasses, and I had this like nasty plaid shirt I threw away because it smelled so bad. Um, and I had these rainbow suspenders, and I'd hike my trousers way up. And I'd, I'd put on this nasally voice like, hi, guys, my name is Felix Einstein. I don't know why smart people have problems with their sinuses, but in my head, <laughs> if you're really smart, you have to talk with a blocked nose. And what I would do on these characters is I would, I'd be Felix Einstein, I'd be the smartest boy in the world, and I'd come on and I'd try to do my smarts of this is how something should work. And throughout the course of the lesson, I'd realize that through God's, God's smarts were bigger than my smarts, and it'd be a cool way to show the lesson. And we do fun little magic tricks and object lessons. This is weird thing, this weird period of my life when I was 12, right? I was stuck on stage for everything. Um, and um, what was particularly funny is that I ended up doing this character quite a bit uh, for regular kind of Sunday morning services. And then when my children's pastor ran, uh, there was a big kind of summer camp thing that all the kind of churches would go to. He was the one who was running it for the kids. And so he got me along to come and do this character for the kids. And so I ended up doing this Felix Einstein character for all these kids and 
doing all these lessons, and I talked in this nasally voice all the time, and this weird thing happened as I began to become known as Felix. Now, I did something that probably didn't help that so much. In, um, around this period of time, I was just learning to get, get into music, and I really wanted to play the drums, but I didn't have a drum set. So I needed to raise some money to buy a drum set, but I didn't have any money. And so what did I do? Well, at this summer camp, I knew that there was this girl who was going to be singing. She was probably intermediate age as well. She's probably at 12, 13. She'd recorded her own album. And so after the session, she had like a little table where she was going to sell her album and people could buy it. And I thought, that's a really great idea. But I don't sing. All I do is this Felix Einstein character. And so in my naivety, now I'm super embarrassed about this, but it's crazy funny when I look back on it. I wanted to raise the money. So what I ended up doing is I ended up getting like 500 headshots printed of me as Felix Einstein with like a water gun, and I'd set up on my table next to the girl who's selling a legitimate product, and I'd set up next to her with my stack of headshots and a pen, and I sold autographs of my face for a dollar each. Now, I don't know what's more sad, the fact that I somehow thought this was a good idea, and I was vain enough to think selling my signature in my face would be enough to raise some money. I don't know if that's more sad, or if it's more sad that enough kids actually bought this photo <laughs> that I was able to buy a drum set. So I'm not, sure, um, I'm not sure who's the loser at the end of the day. But the funny thing about this whole sequence was is the more I did these stupid headshots and the more I did it, the more I became known as Felix. And all the kids, when they look at me, they'd shout, hey, Felix, and how's it going, Felix? And almost my identity of Colin began to like recede to the background. And so I ended up putting on this nasally character all the time. And it became very much a part of my ethos when I did any sort of interactions with kids or kids ministry or these summer camps. And um, <clears throat> I realized I stumbled onto greatness. I stumbled onto a thing called method acting. Now, the Hollywood elites probably could learn a few things from me, but there's this thing that um, other actors do, which is you take on the persona that you're trying to convey. You don't just do it to try and recite the lines. You don't memorize it. You almost step into the role, like make it become yourself so that you can play this role more efficiently. And lots of different artists and actors have done this in crazy ways. So in um, 2003, there's a movie called The Pianist with Adrian Brody. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. He, he, went, he went so into his role, he really tried to insert himself into it. So he actually learned to play the piano, practiced for four hours a day for months on end so he could actually play all the pieces in the scene. But that wasn't enough for him. Uh, throughout the story of this movie, it's about a Jewish um, refugee during the Holocaust who ends up being lost and hiding throughout Europe. And he wanted to take on this sense of being lost and being hidden. And so he actually, Adrian Brody, sold all of his stuff, grabbed a keyboard, cut off all communication ties with everyone that he knew, and he moved to Europe for months to wander around to try and engage himself in this sense of being lost. Or um, Billy Bob Thornton, in a movie called Sling Blade in 1996, he played a character with a limp, but he wanted to play it really convincingly, so he actually took crushed glass and put it in his shoes, so that when he walked around, he physically looked like he was in pain, because he was actually in pain. Probably the, the king of method acting, of taking on this persona, is a guy named Daniel Day-Lewis, who's famous for all kinds of films, and he's done this form of method acting, and he's taken it more and more serious every time. But one of the fascinating ones was in the 2012 movie Lincoln, where he played the American president, Abraham Lincoln. He wanted to get into Lincoln's role, so he looked at photos of Lincoln over and over for hours and hours and hours, 
trying to mold his face, his expressions to match Lincoln's. He read his journals for hours and hours on end. And so once shooting finally began, Daniel Day-Lewis actually stayed in Lincoln's persona for three months nonstop. He didn't break character once. He kept the voice, he kept the hunch, he kept the movements, everything. He kept it solid for three months. In fact, when the other cast had to refer to him, he made them all refer to him as Mr. President. Uh, when he spoke to his other co-stars, like Sally Fields, who was, played his wife, he didn't refer to her as Sally, he always referred to her as Molly. And it's this, uh, this thing where he took on the role so that it almost became part of him. And it worked out well for him because, I mean, he got Best Actor in 2012, so, you know, if you're rolling in the Benjamins, the prize is all right. But um, the reason I'm looking at this is because there's different roles that we all play. And now there's all kinds of messages, and every Disney movie will be telling you to be yourself, right? Just be yourself. Everyone will love you. But the truth is, not many of us are very good at doing that, are we? We always have a persona, an image, uh, a face that we like to put on for what we think people need us to do. Now, that might be in small ways, like, you know, when uh, someone says something in a, in a group, and there's a joke happens, and you have no idea what the joke is, but you kind of go, <laughs> and then hope desperately no one will ask you why you're laughing. Because you don't know, but you don't want to be seen as not knowing why the joke is funny, so you laugh. Or how many of us will have that instance where you're talking with someone, and you can't quite hear what they say, or you don't understand their words, and so you might ask them once or twice, what are you, sorry, what, what? But after a few times, you just nod along and say, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Because you don't want to be seen as ignorant. You don't want to be seen as um, deaf, you don't want to be seen as behind the curve. And this happens all the time in lots of different scenarios. The, the friends we often have, we mold ourselves to become more like them. To, we'll like movies that we probably don't like, we'll pretend to like them so that we can get along with different people. Some of us have even gone into careers to fit this image of what we think is expected. I need to be a doctor, I need to be a lawyer, I need to be this, I need to be that, so that we can fit this expectation of what we think people want us to be. You with me? Is it just me? But there's this sense of we often put on a face to be what we think the world expects of us. Now, if that is you, you're in good company because it's not just you. This is actually something that's really, really common, and it's a societal trend that's actually happening. There's a really famous sociologist uh, called Zygmunt Bauman, and he talked about the changes in society over the past 50 years, and one of the languages that he used is he says we're shifting from a society that used to be solid with solid concrete structures and solid things, and we're shifting into a liquid society. Now, what he means by that is in the 1800s, what we'd always invest in were huge infrastructure projects, big rail networks, big canal networks, big massive infrastructure things that are solid and concrete. Um, when you took a job, you had that job for your life. Companies were expected to stand hundreds and hundreds of years, but now, Sigmund Bauman says things have changed. We're in liquid modernity. Things are always growing. They're always in flux. They're always moving. And it's so true. If you think about before we invested in hardware like rail and infrastructure, now the most important thing is software. And it's being reinvented and updated every single week. Most of you are probably frustrated with your phone how many times you have to update your apps. That little number gets really annoying when you have to keep on updating things over and over again. And it's true. Professions where we used to sit in one profession for most of our lives, now most of us will have three or four careers. We have to keep reinventing ourselves as times change, as the, the roles we have to do change. And it can get exhausting, eh? I mean, even big companies that we thought were going to be amazing, companies like, like Snapchat that we thought were going to be the next big thing, already are seen to be as behind the times. 
And it's not just companies that are facing this. What Bauman says is that each of us also face this internal pressure of we have to keep reinventing ourselves to stay up with the times. We have to stay up with the latest news stories. We have to stay up with the latest technology, the latest um, movies, the latest programs, the latest fads, the latest trends. And if we're not constantly reinventing ourselves, putting on a face of what's expected, meeting up to the man of what the world wants us to be, then the greatest death, as Bauman says, that happens is we become invisible. No one notices us. We're no longer desirable. And what makes us so stressful is that in this context, it's our job, it's your job to stay desirable in our world. You have to present the best face that you can always present so that people will like you. You have to be the best employee you can always be so that you can go forward. You have to be the best student you can always be so that you can go forward. You have to keep reinventing yourself, putting on a face of what's expected so that you can succeed in this world. And truth be told, that is exhausting. It is exhausting to have to keep on putting on a face. Even for me, having to do that stupid Felix Einstein character, by the end you're so annoyed trying to having to put on the voice, put on the persona, put on a smile, put on those actions, put on those smiles for people so that you are what they want you to be. And so it's no wonder that anxiety and stress is one of the greatest plights that affects so many of us in our culture today because we all feel the stress that we have to keep on putting on a face, putting on an image, playing a role. So the song we're gonna look at today is a lament for the disenfranchised. It's a song that talks about this race of constantly putting up this face, but realizing that at the end it's really empty, it's exhausting and it's hollow. It's written by one of my favorite bands. Um, it's a song called Fake Plastic Trees by a band called Radiohead. Which, any other Radiohead fans? No, cool, just me, yes! You guys are cool, we'll hang out afterwards. Um, and the rest of you need to reinvent yourselves to like it, otherwise you're not acceptable. Um, <clears throat> so to understand the context of the song, um, they wrote uh, their big smash hit on their debut album was a song called Creep. And it was great, like, I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo. Like, it was this great, like, nah. It tapped into, like, 90s grunge in such a big way, you know? Like, in the 80s, it was glam metal and big hair metal about big shows. And then the 90s, grunge came along, and people were like, nah, I don't like it anymore. And so they wrote this big song called Creep, and it was huge. International best-selling hit. But what they found was that when they went to write their second album, the producers, everybody wanted them to put on another creep. Write us another creep, a bigger, bigger creep, a louder creep, so that more people will like it. And the record producers were pressuring, pressuring them, be the next big thing, put on this face, be what we want you to be, be what we expect you to be. And they found even at their shows, this happened, people would come to watch them, and then as soon as they'd play creep, people would leave. They'd just walk out of the show and not come back. And so Radiohead and Tom York and, and the artists from this band were so frustrated because they had this image of what they were expected to be, but they, never, they knew they were gonna never match up to that. In fact, when they wrote their first early versions of the song, um, they sent it to their producers in America, and the producers in America were like, this isn't enough of a hit. And so they got another producer there to rejig it, to remix it, to add in all these extra elements, and it became this huge, nasty, mixed up production that was filled with all these different fake things. And so the band got that back, and they're like, this is horrible, Everybody's expecting us to be this, and we're not. It's empty, it's meaningless, we can't do it. And so the lead singer, Tom York, um, threw a hissy fit, um, kicked everyone else out of the studio, and sat down with a guitar and recorded this song as it was. And so, um, yeah, band's gonna play it for us now. 
me 
Fascinating song, eh? Green plastic watering can for a fake Chinese rubber plant in the fake plastic earth that she bought from a rubber man in a town full of rubber plants to get rid of itself. And the last line is so haunting to me. This talks about his love. She tastes like the real thing. She looks like the real thing. My fake plastic love. If I could just be who you wanted. If I could just be who you wanted but it wears me out. It's this amazing lament for those who are disenfranchised, for those who have done this rat race trying to find meaning in all the things that we're supposed to find meaning in, in our careers, in the success, in doing all these things. When you get to the top and you realize that it's all empty and it's exhausting to keep running that race, trying to be who you think the world wants you to be. Now, it's easy for us in the church to be like, oh, well, it's okay. Jesus, he'll fix it all for you. And in one sense, there's, that's true, but it takes away the power of lament and the specific role that lament plays. Because those, any of us who are still Christians and have struggled with anxiety or depression, we all know it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple as just Jesus will make it all magically better. And it's one of the reasons that when we look at this lament series that I want us to spend a quick last moment looking at a book that we don't often get into because I think it gives us hope and it echoes these same feelings of disenfranchisement and loss that the image and the mask that we've always meant to be isn't as good as it was sold to us being. It's a book called Ecclesiastes. And uh, I don't know, it, it's a very unfamiliar book for a lot of us because it's a really confusing book to read. I mean, even scholars and commentaries still argue about what the meaning of it is. Some people say it's this really uh, depressed book where nothing matters and the person finishes it saying, well, I don't get it. Um, well, other people say it's this book of hope and it's really, really conflicting. And so it's a book that we don't often get into, but I think it's helpful understanding it in the context of lament. Now, the theme of the Ecclesiastes is you have the teacher, the wise one, who's writing this book. And his whole purpose is trying to find meaning. So he says here, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. And this is the aim of the book. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. How do we find meaning? What is it we're supposed to do with all of this time? Where do we find hope? Where do we find purpose? Is it by putting on these masks and achieving all these things? And so the, the teacher actually says, I'm going to test it out and I'm going to try. And he actually works through all the things that we think we should find meaning from. He starts by looking at pleasure and power and fame. He said, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart, no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor 
and this was the reward for all of my toil. Yet, when I had surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I put on the mask of trying to get worldly pleasures. I put on the mask of trying to achieve the top things in my work. I put on this mask of just have this hedonistic lifestyle because this is what the world says we're going to find meaning in, right? This is what we get to spend our lives doing. I did it and it was empty. It was fake. It was plastic. So I turned my mind to the next thing he says. I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has other already been done. He looks at wisdom. And I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks around in darkness. But I came to realize that at the end, the same fate overtakes them both. And I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. Do you, have it? Do you understand what he's trying to say? He's pushing through and says, well, if it's not worldly pleasures, then it's wisdom. And for him, wisdom was understanding how the world works, getting all the answers, knowing the right things to do, understanding how God fits into all the things. For us, you could almost say trying to understand theology perfectly or trying to understand philosophy perfectly. He gets through and he works through that effort. And he's probably one of the most wise teachers that we have. And he says, look, but at the end of the day, same thing happens to the fools, happens to me. This great pursuit for just knowledge and wisdom is meaningless. So he turns finally to just work. So my heart began to despair all over my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, but then they must leave all they own to another who's not actually toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving for which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain, and even at night their minds don't rest. This too is meaningless. Can you hear the weariness of someone who's worked so hard to strive and fulfill all the roles he was meant to play? Who tried to do everything he was meant to do right and still came through and found it empty and meaningless? It's the same song. It's all fake. It's all plastic. And it wears me out. Now, why, why focus on this? Because this is quite a depressing thing, eh? Everyone's like, oh, flip, give us some hope here, right? Yeah. The reason that it's significant and the reason I wanted to highlight it is because so for so many of us, lament is an uncomfortable proposition. Spending time working through the things that are wrong is a difficult thing to do because it's painful. And for those of us, particularly if you're a Christian in here, and we have all the wonderful language about Christian hope and, and Jesus providing our hope and Jesus providing our future, that there's almost this expectation that we'll be able to tap into that all the time. That we'll, it we'll be able to live in that place of victory all the time. That we'll be able to put on that mask that says Jesus has fixed it all for me. Maybe it's, maybe it's just me but I think that's an issue that we all have to fight through, particularly when you're a Christian. And what gives me so much hope about Ecclesiastes is that it's someone who knew God, who knew God's ways, and these are still the struggles he went through. And he was not far from God during this period. In fact, it was this period of lament 
that helped him to pay attention. And this is what's so significant. For us, lament is something we'd often rather ignore, eh? We'd rather focus on the good things, ignore the bad things, move on, and everything will be fine. But lament is actually a key, huge part of our development as Christians and as people because it helps us to actually focus in on what's wrong. When we sit there and we're lamenting the tiredness and the exhaustion for the author of Ecclesiastes, the emptiness of doing all these things, it actually hones us into what's actually going on in our hearts. Otherwise, we're just gonna keep on doing the same rat races we've always done, right? We're gonna keep doing the things we've always meant to do, putting on the faces we're always meant to face, and when we can stop and lament and mourn, saying we're exhausted by this, I'm frustrated by this, all these things that have promised me hope, I'm finding empty and meaningless, it's a really healthy thing for us to do. Because it's in those moments that God begins to highlight where he's at. Because it's not often through the big things that we find God. We often find God in the cracks. In the cracks of our development, in the cracks of who we are. Now for me, this has been quite a journey. I've shared the story with some people on Sunday nights, but I haven't shared it on a Sunday morning. For me, masks and having this expectation of what I'm supposed to be was a huge part of my upbringing. Uh, my folks were pastors and missionaries, and so we often had to have that good face on for church, eh? Like, the pastor can't yell at his kids, and then we walk in on Sunday morning and us still be mad. We often be like, Jesus is good! Um, and that was a huge part, and nothing against my parents, it's just the way I internalized it. It's the way I understood I had to be this image of what I was supposed to be. Now, particularly, I'm a white kid in Mexico. Often, I don't understand the language. I don't understand the rules. I don't understand the culture. And so this idea of putting on a face became really, really key and really, really important because I had to be who I thought people needed me to be. And it became such an ingrained part of myself that it even got into my spirituality. And the way I know this is because when I went off to go uh, do a DTS with Wyoming, a discipleship training school, um, there's that moment where a lot of people will go around and share their testimonies. Everyone will say, oh, this is what I've been through. This is what I've been through. This is what I've been through. Well, for me, that was a huge anxiety-ridden process because I needed to be what people wanted me to be rather than just being who myself was. And I looked around at the other people, and there were some serious stories. Like some people had had a drug abuse history. Some people had come from uh, domestic violence. And there are these serious stories. And I was a good Christian boy. I hadn't done anything wrong, right? I was like, yay, right? And um, I felt really insecure by that because I had to be this person with a serious story and a serious past. So what I did is when they were going around sharing their stories, I would wait until I sat down about three quarters away around the room so I could look at other guys my age and hear their stories. And I wanted to hear what they shared. And I would listen and I'd think, okay, so that one goes through. That person talked about uh, drugs and gambling. Nope, I couldn't pull that off. Um, that's too dramatic. That person was like, oh, he had slept with lots of women. And I'm like, Nah, I haven't, even had a, I haven't even kissed a girl. There's no way I could pull that one off. If anyone presses me for details, I'm hopeless. But then someone went around and someone talked about drinking, and I thought, I could probably pull that off. I've seen enough movies about drinking. I could probably describe hangovers to people. And so when it came around to my part of the story, I just picked little snippets of other guys' testimonies, other white guys, and just conveniently added it into my own mix. And so I had those stories where I was like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I grew up in Mexico, my parents were missionaries, and then, you know, when I was like, you know, I was 15, I just got really frustrated. My dad cared more about ministry than he did about me. No, that's not true. My dad was lovely, and he paid all attention in the world to me, but it made a better story when I was like, I felt alone. And so I shared that, and I was like, nah, they didn't love me. And um, 
So I did that, and then I was like, yeah, and then, you know, because they didn't love me, I got really into drinking, and so I started drinking lots, drinking really heavily, and did that most weekends, and it was really tough. My parents were really angry with me, but you know, about like six months ago, God really met me and restored me, and you know, I've kind of left all that behind, so praise be to God for his goodness. I'm a really spiritual person, right? How is he a pastor? Um, but that was my story. And this is why it's so important. Because for me, that, it, that drive to be who people wanted to be was so strong that in my head, what I was doing wasn't wrong. Like, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind that I was lying. This was a survival mechanism to be who I thought people wanted me to be. And so it wasn't until God began to force me into places of lament that I began to realize that this was a bad thing to do. Which is kind of funny that you're like, maybe lying in your testimony is a sin. That didn't cross my mind until later. <laughs> because it wasn't until at the end of this time at DTS, honestly, one girl said to me, Colin, you're always like this. You never like this, you never like this, you're always like this. And she meant it as a compliment because she was all over the place kind of person. And she was like, you're really steady. But what that did, God used that little thing to just drill in my head. And it began to work in me. I'm like, what do you mean I'm like this? Am I meant to be like this? I thought no one wants me to be like this. If I'm like this, I'm like all the other people in the room. But if I'm like this, then I'm too happy. I need to be steady. I need to be this. I need to be what people expect me to be. And God began to unravel me. He began to like, just tear me apart. And I began to lament. I wrote down pages and pages full of questions of who am I meant to be? This was meaningless. What was the point of this? What's the point of trying? What's the point of showing my bad emotions if people are just going to have to feel bad for me? What's the point of being angry if I'm just going to have to apologize later? What's the point of doing this if I'm just going to have to do that later? And it was this, basically this long period of lament. And it was only through this lament that I looked and I realized, flip, I need healing. Flip, I've been living with a mask on for so much of my life. I've been living with the expectations people wanted me to be for so long that I've forgotten who I am. And it was through the brokenness of this period that God tore me down. And I spent hours just in tears, just asking these questions, praying, and asking that God would heal me. It was almost like this vitriolic, in the lament, all of this hate and anger and pain begin to come out. And once that was out, God was able to bring some healing in. And I think for so many of us, we're afraid of lament. We're afraid of these emotions because of the pain that it will bring. We're afraid of what lies underneath. We're afraid of losing that image of perfection, that image of that we've got it all together, that we're competent, that we know what we're doing, that we're wise, responsible adults that are well-adjusted in this world. That's what we all desperately try to do. But the heart of the gospel is that God doesn't use your perfection for his glory. God doesn't use your greatness for what he wants to do. It's in your brokenness that God really shines through you. It's when we let go of that image, that veneer that says, yes, I have to be this perfect person, that we begin to see God begin to work within us. And this is why laments are so powerful, because when we engage with them, when we begin to lament the pains and the wrongs and the fears and the doubts that we have, we give space for God to begin to work within us, to work within the very broken things, to shine his light, his healing, and his hope. And it's only through coming through those things that God begins to actually bring life again. At the end of Ecclesiastes, if I can ask the band to come up. At the end of Ecclesiastes, after all this journey of meaningless 
and everything is vain, he actually comes to this resolve. Now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. There is hope on the other side of these laments, but the author of Ecclesiastes didn't get there at the beginning of the book. He got there once he went through that journey. And so the reason that we've been doing this series at Lament for us, particularly leading up to Christmas, when the image of a fake plastic face is all the more tempting to be in the holidays with family members and friends, the reason we've spent time on this is because we want to encourage you. It's not through your perfection that God wants to work. It's not through your image of greatness or your competence that God says, yes, I choose that person. It's through your brokenness and your honesty that God will work through you. And it's through the cracks in our lives that God's light will shine to the world. So can I ask you to stand as the band plays this song? And can I encourage you? There are those of you here who probably feel exhausted because of the mask that you've been wearing for so, so long. You've held an image in front of your face for so long of what you think people expect you to be. Can I encourage you as this song plays, feel free to sing if you want to, but just mentally say, God, help me to take it off. Help me to let go of these expectations of what I'm meant to be. That God might begin to shine through the cracks and the brokenness in each of our lives. Jesus, I thank you that you, you don't call perfect people to your kingdom. Lord, and I thank you that it's actually through the things that are wrong in our lives, through our brokenness, through our shame, through our sins, that you meet with us. And God, you're not interested in us coming here and putting on a face of happy Christian or, or good Christian. You're interested in us coming here and being honest with you and honest with one another. Lord, would you help us to remove the masks and the roles that we've taken on for so long? Because for some of us, they feel like they've become part of us. And to take them off is too scary and difficult of a proposition. God, we almost need you like surgery to gently begin to remove the layers that we've built up around ourselves to keep ourselves protected and safe to fit the expectations of what we think people want of us. Lord, would you begin to remove those? And I pray that over this season, this Christmas season, that there would be a chance where we'd be able to meet you where we are at without pretense, without roles, without plastic. God, would you shine your light in and through us?